Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, the podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. Welcome to our first episode of the new season. This is exciting. Uh, Father Wes, how are you doing? Doing really well. Doing really well. Had a good summer break. It was nice to get a couple weeks off, but it's also nice to be back and hitting the ground running. Uh, new season, new haircut. Got one today, so that's nice. Um, and also our Jeep uh, had a catastrophic engine failure. So ooh, yeah, ooh. been great since the last time we talked. How about you? Um, I have not gotten a haircut and uh, thankfully have not had catastrophic engine failure. <laughs> I'm going to knock on some wood, rub it in, Mary, do something to make sure that doesn't happen. Rub it in, why don't you? Uh it's good. It's been a it's been a good summer on my end. Um, staying busy and looking forward to the uh, to the autumn. Actually, got some some cool things coming. So looking forward to that. Uh, but other than that, yeah, trying not to just wither and die from the heat. It's a hundred. Oh, it's a hundred degrees today, yep. where I am. A hundred. What's wrong with this place? Yeah, it's not been a great uh, summer for weather. It's been very hot here too, though not as hot as Atlanta. But it's it's uh, it's not nice. And you, it's one of those days where you want to stay inside and you know turn the air conditioning on and feel like a southern belle and fan yourself. That's exactly what I think about when I think about you, southern right. bells. Yep, that's a, that sounds about right. Today, uh, on this episode, we're going to get into a really cool topic. I think this is a good one. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the seven deadly sins, which is a big topic. And we're going to do our best to try to cover everything and not keep you here for hours and hours on end. Um, but the seven Gotta deadly sins. catch them all. Yeah, they're like Pokemon. <laughs> don't, don't try to catch all the seven deadly sins. Don't, don't do that. Um, but yeah, so, so sometimes uh, if you're reading about the seven deadly sins or you're uh, looking at, at you know catechisms and things like that, you might see them referred to as the capital vices, um, the cardinal sins. I just like to call them the seven deadlies. Um, I think that's a nice quick way to, to refer to them. And just as an overview, uh, so cast your mind back to your Sunday school or a catechism, whatever it is. Uh, the seven deadly sins are pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth, or sometimes called acedia. And we will get to that. And later on in this season, we'll also uh, be dealing with uh, specifically Acedia, and we will look at the virtues, both cardinal and theological, and how they help us to wage war against the vices. Now, I don't know how you feel about this, or if you have a strong opinion one way or the other. I kind of like the term capital sins instead of deadly sins. Um, and of course, in both of these, and no matter what we call it, we're talking really about vices or habits, dispositions of the soul that then result in actions, right? Um, right? A brave person is more likely to act bravely in a given situation, but the, the merit comes from the, from the actual action itself. Um, and the disposition is the kind of grounding of the 
action. So um, if you are a greedy person, you will probably in a given situation act more greedy. Um, whereas if you're a generous person in the same situation, you might act generously. So these are kind of the, the precondition for the action itself. But I like the term capital because it has these sort of military connotations. So in the Noonday Devil, which is a great book about Acedia, which we'll talk about this episode and in the episode on Acedia, um, Jean-Charles Nault, who's the author, susses out the significance of the term capital sins. He says, capital sins or vices are vices that bring along the reins after them in, in much the same way as in an army, the file leaders have a whole line of soldiers behind them. The expression capital sins, therefore, refers not to their seriousness, but rather to the aptitude of these sins to engender others, which gives them a particularly formidable character. You can think about some of the ways this gets talked about um, where the capital sins have daughters. You know, they reproduce or you might see uh, you might see them depicted in terms of trees. And, and the same is true of virtues. Right. Um, but of trees, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil and the vices you know, the branch with the with the capital vice will branch off into smaller branches with the kind of result of those capital sins. So I really like those, uh, that terminology. And uh, of course, I think we should make it clear that Hugh of St. Victor is the one who inaugurated this way of speaking about capital sins. That's very important um, to make sure that we give him credit where credit is due. Yeah, of course, you're going to pick, you know, pull out some Hugh of St. Victor, which we always appreciate. Uh, I live to please. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think capital sins makes makes a good point because you know they they really are the captains right leading leading the troops towards a particular action or or um you know giving the foundation for a particular action so i think that's really helpful and i think it's especially helpful to again when we look at virtues coming up um you know we often talk about the cardinal virtues and you can talk about these as like the cardinal sins as well and and that really means the hinge the hinge on which that action takes place. Um, and so these, these particular vices um, really do sort of lead us in a particular direction. They may not be mortal sins in and of themselves, but they are the groundwork for the sin that comes after. Um, and I think that's an important way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, just in terms of some background and some interesting uh, tidbits here too, uh, I think it's important to also note that the concepts of vice and virtue aren't strictly a product of Christianity, but I think we can make a really strong argument that the articulation and definition of uh, those vices and virtues has really had its flowering uh, in Christian theology. And you can look back at Aquinas and Bonaventure and, and you know tons of medievals who are really doing some heavy lifting here um, to try to articulate what these virtues and vices are doing in our lives. But if you look historically back into the Greco-Roman world, into Greek and Roman philosophy, in both those societies, there is a huge tradition. Um, think of Plato's Republic, for instance, where there's praising of virtues and condemning of vices. Um, Someone like Horace, the the Roman author, instructs his readers that to, you know, the the thing you must do is flee vice because that's the beginning of virtue and to have got rid of folly is the beginning of wisdom, which I think we would all resonate with, you know, now as as Christians doing theology. Um, 
little interesting thing too, because I think Eastern philosophies and religions are interesting and worth study. Uh, we see a similar uh, kind of characteristic, a, a sort of universal understanding of virtue and vice uh, in the Eastern philosophies and Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, in Hinduism, there's there are the six enemies, uh, and it's almost exactly the same list as the seven deadly sins. Um, and basically, those enemies prevent the individual from attaining moksha, which is the Hindu sort of conception of of enlightenment or or liberation. They're the they are the foundation, the enemies which pull the individual to and fro, like passions, uh, leading the person down into uh, suffering, dislocation, what we would say is sin. Uh, so, in many ways, the the seven deadly sins are doing the same thing. Uh, they're the extremes of our natural appetites. They're unruly passions which hold us captive in their you know alluring embrace. They're really pleasurable in the moment. They're easy to fall into, um, but ultimately they're going to drag us in the wrong direction. Um, the virtues kind of pull us in the right direction. And this is why, and, and something you said there made me think about this a little bit more too, that that in the Christian tradition, much like the, the tradition that came before it, the pre-Christian tradition, uh, there is a kind of twofold movement here. And it's why we have to do an episode on the seven deadly sins and an episode on the different virtues, because the first step sort of is always depicted as the purging of vice, but the second step is always the grasping of virtue. So we do one in order to make room for the other. Um, I think Cassian uh, has this intricate diagram in the institutes where he talks about religious knowledge as a category. And it has two areas. One is the practical, which involves those two steps, removing the bad and replacing it with good actions. And then the second is theoretical. That is the contemplation of God. But you can't really get into the theoretical without there being practical progress, you know, in terms of clearing away the bad and uh, the the hungry is filled with good things, as uh, as the Magnificat says. So I think it's really important to draw those two steps as kind of working together. It's almost like when you walk, you know, you have to put one foot in front of the other. And that's constantly what we're doing is we're trying to clear away the vices that do have a grip on us. And we're trying to to to, to transplant in their place virtues. Exactly. Yeah, they they work. You know, the, the, the two ideas kind of go hand in hand. Um, you can't add virtue on top of vice, right? right? Right. You have to get, you have to get rid of the vice first to then add the virtue in, um, which is in the end of the day, you know, I mean, that is the kind of progress towards holiness and sanctification, right? I, I'm working on the things that are causing me to sin and to stumble and to have issues. And I'm trying to medicate them with, uh, what God gives us as, you know, virtues, things that are going to be beneficial to myself and to others. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Right. <laughs> Get them out. Not if you're the Baltimore Ravens, in which case they only are ever interested in having a good defense and not a good offense, but that's a whole other discussion. All right. All right, Father Wes, are you okay? I'm okay. Okay. Had to check in for a second. I'm not actually a big Baltimore Ravens fan. It's just funny because their defense is always really good and their offense is always really bad. Well, you are a Marylander, so... That's true. That's true. Putting the Mary back in Maryland. Amen. Um, yeah, so 
I think that is helpful and, and we'll kind of unpack that more when we get into the virtues and things as well. But the first uh, kind of as a historical note, the first time we see the seven deadly sins as, as we sort of understand them and know them today uh, listed for us is in the writing of the desert fathers and early monastics. Um, and so the kind of first principal figure who gives us a list is uh, a, a somewhat controversial figure, um, Evagrius of Pontus. And he was, a, he was a prolific theologian and writer in the fourth century. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his discourses on the monastic life are still read today. And he influenced a, a number of important theologians like St. John Cassian and St. John Damascene. Uh, I actually, the other day, I heard at the coffee shop, I heard somebody talking about Evagrius of Pontus and, um, you know, his book specifically talking to monks and, and the monastic life. And my ear kind of pricked up because you don't often hear people in a coffee shop talking about Evagrius of Pontus. Um, and it was, it was, you know, these two guys having a, a conversation about, uh, you know, kind of the stuff we're going to talk about today. And it was really fascinating. I just didn't expect it. And they both, uh, I ended up talking to them and they both come from an evangelical background. Neither of them had ever read Evagrius of Pontus before or even heard of him. Hmm. Uh, so I just thought that was interesting. And now they're both big fans of the podcast. Uh, well, I hope so. I hope so. Um, yeah. And actually, so, shout out to our friend, Father Paul Rivard in our diocese. He has done some work on Evagrius of Pontus. Yeah, absolutely. He's also um, on our Discord, so if you'd like to chat with him, you can. You can you can join our Discord by becoming a Patreon supporter for five dollars a month. Little plug. There we go. Um, but yeah, so so kind of getting back to to Evagrius of Pontus, he created a list of eight vices, um, the logis moi, which plagued the monk in his pursuit of holiness and virtue. And I think. If I remember correctly, logismoi in their vocabulary had the uh, connotation of like a like an assaulting thought. So there's also kind of a military. It's like an attack, and it's and it's it's up here. I mean, when we think of disposition of the soul in terms of habit, we I think think of more than just the mental. Mm -hmm. um, but for him, it's it's a thought that comes into the mind. At least that's where it begins. Right, right. Kind of a, an intrusive thought or. Um... If you if you kind of expand the word for logos to mean more than just word, you know it's like an intrusive pattern, mm. an intrusive rationale, an intrusive logic, um, which I think is helpful here because it kind of gets to that foundational aspect. Um, his list originally included eight vices, and um, if you go look up his list, you're going to basically see the same things. He includes uh, like boasting or vainglory and uh, that then gets picked up by his student, which is St. John Cassian. And he kind of translates that list into Latin, brings it into the Western tradition, and begins writing on it. And the, the first time we sort of get the list of seven is a little revision that was uh, done by St. Gregory the Great. And he, he basically takes the uh, something like vainglory, for instance, Instead of saying that's a separate thing, he, he puts that under pride um, and says it's kind of a subcategory. And like we talked about with the trees, you know, pride is a big category. It's going to lead to different things like 
maybe boasting. Um, and so that, that revised list of seven, and that's the list we provided earlier on, is the one that gets picked up as sort of the, the list, the seven deadly sins, and uh, work is done by medievals like St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and if you're interested, he does treat this very extensively uh, in the Summa. Uh, so you can go find that if you're interested. I think it might be helpful too to talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about vice as opposed to virtue as we're entering into this list. Um, so virtue traditionally is found as the golden mean between two excesses. Um, so vice often exists on both ends of the spectrum and the virtue is more towards the middle, the space in between. For example, fortitude is the willingness to endure difficult things in pursuit of a good end. That lies between cowardice on the one hand, the vice of deprivation, and stupidity, or, or rashness, I guess we could call it, maybe is more politically correct, which is the vice of excess. So cowardice is the unwilling to endure difficult things, unwillingness to endure difficult things in pursuit of a good end. You know, it's turning tail to run away as soon as things get tough or we encounter resistance. On the other hand, stupidity is the willingness to endure difficult things without seeing a larger telos to that endurance. It's running into the situation with guns blazing. So like we could think about this in terms of just war theory. There are cases in which the state should intervene with force, like in the event of a human rights abuse. That would be a legitimate reason for intervention. To not intervene would possibly constitute a lack of fortitude, right? A lack of courage to do something good. At the same time, a state that's always intervening too readily we won't name, name names, and or without a chance of achieving victory, so the intervention is pointless or just for its own sake, should reconsider how they intervene because they've given into the vice of excess. And of course, these apply to us as individuals in whatever context and situations we find ourselves. I mean, how much should we eat? You know, we can think of the three bears. Mama bear and papa bear are the vices of deprivation and excess, respectively. Baby bear is the golden mean. He has everything just enough, just the right temperature, just the right comfort level. Um, and so we should want to kind of be in the middle there between two extremes. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the sort of Renaissance uh, maxim, moderation and everything, I think applies here because that's not about necessarily the practicality, mm. right? It's not like you should eat less, right? That might play into sort of moderating and modulating one's excess. Maybe one is gluttonous. You should eat less. Um, but that idea of moderation is sort of getting to this idea of of pursuing virtue and virtue uh, not being this life of extremes of, um, you know, kind of going too far or, or not going far enough. And there's a kind of qualitativeness that goes along with this, too. So. I mean, we hear the word moderation, and I think a lot of times we think lukewarm, you know, I mean, you think of American politics, and that's being a moderate is almost kind of a, an insult to a lot of people, you know, you're in the middle, you don't basically you don't have the backbone to pick a side, you know, one or right. the other. Um, what we when we talk about moderation or temperance, what we really mean, I think is fittingness. So it's knowing that there are that in order to enjoy a thing, it has to be used properly. So when you're at a feast, you don't eat the same way at the feast that you would eat on a Friday during Lent, for example, because one is appropriate. You know, they're different. There are different levels of appropriateness or or fittingness 
when it comes to eating. And so it's really unfitting if we feast on a Friday and Lent and we then we go to a nice party, you know, celebrating someone's birthday or something and we don't engage in the celebration. Um, both of those are are unfitting or, or immoderate or um, unvirtuous in a way, you know. Yeah, and the church does a great job of teaching us how to do that, right? The seasons of feasting and fasting are a great way for the church to teach us that there are appropriate things, that something is good when it's in its right place. Yes. Hmm, uh, this reminds me, I'm having deja vu. <laughs> it's it's also true, too, liturgically speaking. I mean, I think some of our listeners know that I'm a bit of a liturgy nerd, but um, in the liturgy, sometimes there are things that are done at certain liturgies that are not done at other liturgies. Uh, so for instance, at different points in the church year, you know, the Gloria goes away. Mm -hmm. uh, a weekday mass, there isn't necessarily a creed. And that doesn't mean the creed's not important or that the Gloria isn't important because it goes away. What it's doing is saying there's a proper time and place for it. So the fullest, biggest, brightest solemnity is going to have all of these pieces to it. It's a liturgical feast. And that there are other times uh, to, to sort of facilitate a more contemplative, quiet, uh, more meditative liturgical experience. The church pairs things back, um, privates the mass, where we get misa privata, private mass. It doesn't mean alone. It means privated, taken away from. And that's that's okay too. That serves its place. That's part of its proper place. Um, and so the church is is really trying to teach us in very subtle ways the virtue of moderation, temperance. Where this might also come out is in Adam and Eve, right? When they want to be like God, well, the scriptures tell us we should be like God. There's a sense in which that's not a bad desire. It was a kind of immoderate desire, an unfitting desire, and a, a wanting to be like God in a way that's not quite right. You know, it's not fitting for the creature right. to want to be like God in that way. But there are ways in which as creatures we should. So they want what they want in a bad way and they act on it. And so that becomes a problem. But wanting to be like God is a good thing. You should want to be like God, but you should want to be like God in the way God tells you to be like God or else right. you're not being very godlike. Right. It, it has its proper time and proper place. Exactly. Um, you know, we could speculate and say that at a certain time and place in the future, once they had gained spiritual maturity, that the tree that they ate from would have been given to them. Mm -hmm. But they wanted it early. Right. We want to open our presents early. We want to eat before we should or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's a That's an important thing. And I think everybody listening should kind of keep that in their mind. Uh, as we continue these conversations on seven deadly sins and then the upcoming on virtues, um, the theological virtues, the cardinal virtues. Uh, so I think that kind of takes us into the kind of meat and potatoes of the episode, which is let's kind of take a look at the seven deadly sins themselves. And because this is a large topic and because uh, I think in a lot of ways, um, when we say some of these words, when we say, for instance, pride, we're going to start with pride. A lot of people have an idea of what they think pride is. Mm. And in some ways, they, they might be right, but that's not the totality of what pride is. And so what we give you here in terms of a definition may not be the fullest 
most extensive definition you can have for pride. Um, but hopefully it's going to be enough to get people thinking and understanding that pride is actually a big topic. Uh, and it, and it may not just simply be reducible to, uh, well, pride is, is, you know, when I think I'm more important than anyone else, that's part of it. Which, which is a good reminder too, that it's very easy to fall into a kind of fundamentalism with the fathers and the tradition of the church that is, has kind of a parallel in maybe evangelical circles. So like when I grew up, uh, there were fundamentalists who would say things like the Bible says, insert trite comment that lacks all nuance here. And it happened to just be whatever they believed. The Bible says that um, they couldn't necessarily show you a chapter or verse that says that, but the Bible says this uh, without any nuance. Similarly, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the church fathers say, or the church says, and, you know, they may not be altogether wrong, and there may be some church fathers who say X or some who say Y. So, I mean, for example, Creighton and I were having a conversation before we started about acedia and sloth, and what is the relationship? Are those two terms interchangeable? Are they, do they mean something different? And it kind of depends on who you're reading. Different fathers use different terminology for that deadly sin, and they draw out different things. And so, you know, what does the church, what does church tradition say about acedia? Well, it doesn't just say X, it says X, Y, and Z. And it doesn't always neatly parse those things out. And so we have to come along and kind of do the work. So even the definitions we offer here may be slightly incomplete, simply for lack of time and space, but also just because these are really nuanced conversations that are pointing to these really heavy problems that can be encountered in different ways by different people at different times in different contexts. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're, it's easy to talk about like biblical eisegesis. I mean, we're used to that because in Christian circles, we're used to hearing about exegesis and like, how do you properly explicate the scriptures and all these sorts of things that you can do that with the church fathers and church tradition too. Um, you know, just because one father says something doesn't necessarily mean that is the most complete, perfect definition of that thing. Uh, a lot of cases, you know, the thing itself, the 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 concept or the the truth or whatever it is itself, is so large, and it's so multivalent, it's so extensive, that the best way to go about it is to surround it. And so, one person on one side of the circle might sound like they're saying something different than the person on the other side of the circle, but ultimately we're trying to get at the same center point. And so, yeah, just bear that in mind um, as, as you sort of approach really anything theological or, uh, or even biblical. Um, so with that, I think, you know, let's, let's kind of jump in. Let's start with pride because I think in many ways pride is the chief of the vices, right? It's sort of the captain of the captains. Um, and if you if you do some reading, um, be it with Aquinas or or anyone really who's dealing with um, sin and and you know its effects in our lives, um, I, it, there's a there's a way in which you can say that all sin is pride, that everything sort of goes back to pride. Um, Aquinas and others talk about pride being sort of deeply pernicious and demonic in its scope. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about it as being the sort of anti-God state of being. 
And pride is the sin which infested Lucifer and caused him to think that he was equal to God. And the, the kind of unfortunate reality here, right, is that we as human beings, we're not immune from this. We do this all the time. Uh, and so with pride, we deceive ourselves that we are either good, like we are too good, or we are too evil. I think this is an aspect of pride that doesn't get looked at enough. Uh, so the, the one that we might expect to hear is that we are so good, right? We think ourselves so correct, so superior to others that we're very selfish. We act against love of God because we're like, we're better than that. We're good. We don't need any help. We act against our neighbor because I'm better than my neighbor. And so maybe I know more than him or I'm prettier than she is. So there's there's a real kind of underlying lack of humility and selflessness. And I think that's probably the definition most people understand is pride. But the flip side of that is actually despair. Uh, because despair itself is the vice of pride. It's so, the vice of deprivation of pride. Exactly. Exactly. We, we think, you know, in, in the first instance we think ourselves so good that we don't need god well with despair we think ourselves too evil too bad like i'm so bad that god can't save me and that severs our relationship with god because it's it's saying that your badness is more superior to god's goodness you know it's 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 a it's a negation in and of itself um but we think we don't need him or we don't, or we think he's not powerful enough to save us. But in either event, it's our own sort of self-image, our own self-conception that is thought of as more powerful than God, or more powerful than God's ability to save us, and that will lead to our downfall. And you know, I think everybody is probably familiar with Proverbs sixteen: um, pride leading to destruction, because ultimately. Uh, if you want to use uh, maybe a, an ancient Greek uh, word for this, I know uh, Father Wes in in your other podcast, The Classical Mind, you guys are going to be doing some Greek tragedies uh, coming up. And so a lot of times when you read Greek tragedies, you're going to hear the word hubris. And I think that's, you know, an important piece to this, right? There's that sort of tragic fall. You think you're on top of the world. And then something, you know, your world crashes down. Or as the medievals like to talk about the wheel of fate, right? Sometimes you're at the top and you're living the high life. And then other times you're at the bottom of the wheel getting run over. Um, in fact, in that podcast, we talked about Boethius, where the wheel of yeah. fate is really important. And that's kind of his point is, you know, all these circumstances come and they go. And it's possible that when you're up high, you think, oh, well, I did this all myself. But that's never actually true. I mean, especially as Americans, we buy that myth of kind of self-sufficiency, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, a kind of rugged individualism. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it requires a, a whole host of factors where you're born, who your family is, how you're raised. Do you have the same opportunity? Do you have the you know opportunities given to you with which you excel? Uh, all those kind of things play into it. So we're never just it's never just raw, pure determination. There's a whole host of things that go into success. And, and, you know, because of that, things can come and things can go. Yeah. Also, by the way, I think of 
like a really gritty Western movie where there's a character who's like, I, this would be a great tag for a movie like that. They, there are some sins even God can't forgive, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which yeah, is of course not true. Right. And then ends up putting God in a box, which is idolatry. So. Yeah. And, and again, I, we may have harped on this before, but there's an aspect of, of reducing God to a creaturely sort of existence by saying, I'm so good. I'm bigger than God. Oh, now I'm God. Mm-hmm. Or I'm so bad, God can't save me. Well, then God's just sort of another entity on the same plane of being. In both instances, the creature is acting unfittingly for a creature. Exactly. Exactly. Right. In in neither of those instances is it appropriate for a creature to think that about their creator. Right. And pride leads to a whole host of sort of practical problems, right? So you, you have this kind of spiritual issue that's going on with this, this idolatry of self, this lack of humility. Well, then you're constantly going to be, you know, sort of transgressing against your neighbor. You're going to be, uh, you know, you're, you're going to act badly towards your neighbor. You're going to, you know, say things that are nasty. You're going to act unlovingly. If you can put God in a box and treat him like he's another creature what does that mean for how you treat other creatures right everything is going to be used by you for yourself yeah um, to make yourself feel better to you know step on the little guy whatever it is mm-hmm. um, and it, and so you can you can really see how a lot of the other seven you know the the six other deadly sins can really kind of maybe in some ways be sort of slid into pride and say like, okay, this, this kind of really does encapsulate everything Mm. Um, because it's really a misordering of existence. It's a, it's a, it's Mm. a, it's a misunderstanding of your place as it relates to God and neighbor. And, you know, really everything is going to flow from that. Um, The next one is greed. Um, and uh, Cardinal Manning, who I, who I recommend people read, he has a book called Sin and Its Consequences, um, which, is a, which is a really great sort of primer on, on some of these things. And he says that greed plunges a man deep into the mire of the world so that he makes it his God. And that's, again, we kind of talked about that with pride. But following Cardinal Manning, I think we can say that, you know, greed really is taking a worldly good uh, money a house, food, any of those sorts of things, and making it the the thing you worship the most. It's a form of idolatry where the individual spends their energy and their effort in hoarding and amassing and gaining more than what one needs to survive, um, to, to, to live a, a, a kind of prosperous life. In pride, the person puts themselves too high in in greed things that can be good when used properly are elevated to a place where they become ends in and of themselves so boethius for example in consolation of philosophy says well money's fine i mean you can use money for good but the best use of money is to give it away because then you'll have more friends and you won't have to worry about it so much right so the point is there are good uses for money community building you know, improving the lives of others, but to hoard it, to make it an end in and of itself is not good. Right. You know, and, and we don't, we don't want to, um, 
a sort of another callback to a previous episode when we had Dr. Junius Johnson on, we talked about sort of imagination and he likes to talk about dragons and, you know, in, in sort of the kind of historical mythos of the dragon, uh, they're not good. They are greedy, right? They have their horde. Think of Smaug in the Hobbit, um, where, there's no good being done with the gold and the treasure. But the dragon is, you know, he will kill and destroy to protect his treasure and to hoard his treasure and to get more treasure. Don't be a dragon, people. And one wonders why. I mean, what is it worth it to the dragon other than that it's shiny? You know, I mean, it's not like do they have their own dragon economy and he's buying dragon stocks with his gold or something, you know, there's no market value for these things. Like money is money is inherently relational. Yeah. And so when the dragon sits by himself with his hoard of gold, it's like, well, this is actually really dumb. Yeah. Um, you know, Aquinas, Aquinas talks about how this like pride leads you into great, great sin. Um, because you know, uh, given the fact that greed, you know, sort of elevation of something that that could in itself be used for good uh, to a position of uh, of deity, right? Like it is, it is the idol you are worshiping. What is the natural impulse in the human person as relates to uh, religion and God? It is sacrifice. It is ritual. And so the human person becomes willing to sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed on the altar of X gaining more money. Well, that might mean that you, you know, defraud the laborer of his due, uh, which is a sin that cries out to heaven. Um, it might mean cheating. It might mean neglecting your family for workaholism. Right. Not, not coming home and spending time with your kids. It might be like, well, if I just put in a, some extra time at the office, I'll be able to retire earlier or whatever. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just recently watched the show Succession. And on HBO, and one of the characters is a workaholic who hardly ever sees his kids and has the audacity at different times in the show to say to his ex-wife, what I did, everything I do, I do for the kids. Right. It's like, no, you don't. Don't do any of that for the kids. If you really cared about the kids, you would be there for them. Right. So, like, you know, I think a good question to ask oneself when, when you're listening or reading about the seven deadly sins, what are you sacrificing for that particular vice yeah yeah um because they all have an aspect of sacrifice because they're all placing a uh, passion or a worldly good or a pleasure or something like that in the place of god and what are you sacrificing to it yeah how are you worshiping it um so, so it's important to note too after we've covered these first two i think real quick that all of these have good things in them right yeah. The, the relationships that money can represent are good things, but they can become very easily warped, right? So sin isn't a thing in and of itself. It's the warping of something good. Yeah. Same is true with the self, right? Pride takes something that's good. You are good. God created you in his image. But when you elevate yourself higher or in an unfitting way, it's bad, which yeah. kind of leads to the next one, which is wrath. And I think it's really, I think it's easier to demonstrate that, right? Because wrath is when we direct our anger towards an innocent person, according to the catechism of the Catholic church, or when anger becomes too strong or too long lasting, it's excessive. 
the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Because when we see, so for example, it, it, wrath is not anger necessarily, right? When you see an injustice, when the worker is defrauded of their wages, for example, that should make you angry. Hmm. That's a good thing that it made you angry because that will then cause, hopefully cause some sort of change in the material circumstances that exist around that particular sin. But when you pour your anger out on the wrong person, it's misdirected, it's careless, or when you know somebody wrongs you but you want too much based on the crime or the wrong that was committed, it's again, it's an unfitting response. And you can think about how violence then cascades out of this, the Hatfields and McCoys. You know, there is a legitimate wrong, you know, he, in one instance, and then the family that feels wrong retaliates by going above and beyond the call for justice. And then, of course, there's another response. So, and, and then, of course, you get stuck in this cycle of violence. And, of course, that doesn't always have to be physical violence, but... Um, but it can be, it can, you can, that it's directed at another person is the point. Sometimes the wrong person. So we call, we call wrath a sin against charity. For that reason, it's, it's, it's an explosion. It's a rage. It's, it's irrational. Hmm. It, it's not desiring the best for the other person, right? Because when you see an injustice, part of it is you want to protect the person who's being wrong, but part of it is you want to protect the wrongdoer from committing the wrong, which is, violent towards themselves yeah it's a it, it like we've said it's a it's an excess right it's that sort of boiling over of something that might be rooted in a good right it might be rooted in your orientation towards justice but that doesn't mean that you then take that justice and say wow well, now i'm going to be you know i'm going to be the agent of vengeance to to right this wrong or even you know you're so angry that you take it out on like there might be a legitimate reason to be angry over here in this corner. And because you're so angry, you then turn to your spouse and you bite their head off and you treat them badly because you're angry about something over here. Well, that's that's a problem, right? That you've just boiled over. You've just gone to an extreme and misdirected that anger uh, towards somebody who's an innocent party. I'd like to say that in 10 years of marriage, almost 10 years of marriage, I've never done that. Don't well, ask you, my wife. Yeah, well, uh, Sacramentalist interviews Caroline to talk about this. Sacramentalist interview Saint Caroline. True. But yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a you know a, an interesting point because I think a lot of cases uh, people will talk about sort of anger and wrath as being synonymous, but there is there is a sense in which there is sinful anger, and sinful anger is wrath, right? Like. You, you can sin in anger, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, we can see times when our Lord himself is angry about something. Um, you know, think of the, of the temple and the money changers in the temple. Oh, yeah. Uh, angry at the Pharisees for being blind guides. Yeah. And, and you know, ultimately when we allow that to tick over into um, that sort of explosion, that excess, that's when it really becomes dangerous. It becomes really harmful to yourself uh, personally, right? Card like the, the Cardinal Manning again talks about how angry people are slaves to themselves. Right. Which I think is a really interesting 
way to look at this um, because you're being sort of pulled around by your own passions. Um, and, you know, I think in, in many cases too, you know, um, when we are angry, when we are wrathful, there's a sense in which deep down we know we're doing the wrong thing in the moment. Oh, and I think actually that can make it worse, right? That's like fuel for the fire because you know you're acting irrationally, but then that makes you even more angry and, and so more you irrational. you pouring gasoline on the fire. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's like, there's an interesting moment of sort of introspection that happens when you're angry. That initial burst might not be there, but in the midst of it, I, I, it's, a, it's sort of a universal human experience that you know, like, I should not be saying this. I, should, I shouldn't be doing this. And that's where it gets worse, I think. I mean, like, the initial burst of anger one might understand. You know, you see something really horrific and you get angry. You know, maybe you see a hit and run. You know, you get really angry at the car. But then if it involves you, you know, doing something totally. And, and then once you have that moment where your mind maybe slows down, you think, what the heck am I doing? But then you keep doing it. That's even worse because you're intentionally setting aside your rational hmm. faculty to, to continue into the spiral of of irrationality exactly well i think that kind of takes us i mean i think we can kind of jump into to the next one here which is envy um and like sort of greed or lust you know envy is an uncontrolled desire uh, and i think sometimes too you know when we think of the ten commandments um, we think of of sort of covetousness, um, which is, you know, there's a there's a sense of wanting and a sense of resentment that goes with envy. So we we can envy someone's looks, their money, the promotion they got at work, their car, their house, whatever it is. But with envy, you know, there's this sort of underlying lack of. Uh, the sort of goods, the virtues of, uh, of you know, gratitude and thankfulness, that kind of, in a sense, propels us towards wanting something to fill that void. Um, and again, you know, the the sort of good here is that, you know, we we are social creatures, and so we engage in these relationships with other people, and good things happen to other people, bad things happen to us. You know, someone has a nice car. You know, I think most people want a nice car. Like, you know, there's there's a sense in which you can look at something and be like, wow, that's a that's a really beautiful home. I'd really like to have a beautiful home like that. But when it then begins to break down and destroy your relationship with your neighbor, because you, you know, are selfishly just desiring, pursuing, um, you know, what they have instead of being thankful and grateful for what you have and the position that you're in in life, that's when it begins to shred that interpersonal bond. You know, that's when it really becomes a sin against your neighbor uh, and a sin against God because you're not thankful for what's been given to you. And it breaks down that kind of fabric of society. Aquinas, I think, is really helpful here um, because he he kind of breaks it down into three pieces. Um, and he says that, that an envious person kind of first attempts in, in desiring the thing, attempts to lower the other person's reputation. And then the envious person becomes either sort of joyful at someone else's misfortune 
or you know grieved uh, that the other person has been prosperous, and then it ticks over into the third kind of stage, which is the envious person begins to hate the other person. It begins to to shatter that kind of bond of relation that that relationship, that bond of civility, um, and destroys that love of neighbor. Uh, because you can't have it, so you might as well hate that person for having it. I think that's the real key. Because, you know, if you want something just to want it, you're potentially in the sin of greed more than anything else. And so you and 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 what you want is going to be socially conditioned, right? I mean, you know, you want the nice house. Everybody wants their family to have a a house that's big enough for them to survive in. That you know is is nice enough that they can be comfortable. You know, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, though. If you're doing it as an end to itself, that that becomes greed. But when you see someone else have something and you don't want them to have it, yeah, is the real key. Uh, you know, I think as clergy, we can fall into this when we see that so-and-so gets appointed at X parish and we think, oh, really? I don't want them to have that job. I don't care who it is, but not them. There's a kind of malice there, right? You, you see this in academia, you know, it's like, oh, so-and-so did their doctorate at this that school. Uh, you know, I, I don't want them to do it there because that, you know, and, and so there's a little bit of jealousy. There's a little bit of greed wrapped up in this, but it's really that kind of malice, I think, directed at the person who has it. I don't like them for whatever reason. They shouldn't have it. I want it, you know, for me instead. I should have it. And again, you can see how pride and greed are in the background here, at least. Yeah, yeah. And it just it, it just totally breaks down your relationship to the other person. Um, you know, you're going to hate somebody because they have a nice car or got a promotion. Man. Like... You you look you you hear that sort of in an objective sense, right? In the kind of thought bubble that is the us having this conversation right now, and we're like, man, that's silly. But then you actually get out into the world, and you're like, oh, I do that all the time, <laughs> you know? right? And I find it's helpful when those thoughts come up. I mean, not that I have in any sense mastered this, but like, just pray for the good of the other person. You right. Know? You have to get outside of yourself, outside of your desires. And you have to sort of rewire your heart to to affect, you know, to the effect of the other person, right? Yep. That they have good things, pray for them. Yeah. I pray that that thing does what it's supposed to do for them. You know, yeah. that God uses that to to grow them, to make them better, to, you know, whatever. Uh, that's, that's, that's a great solution or a medicine to envy. So I guess that means we can move on to everyone's favorite, uh, to talk about which is lust definitely everyone's favorite uh, definitely everyone's favorite um oftentimes lust can be associated with the kind of intense longing for something or someone lust is often a sexual sin that's probably the first thing that comes to mind i mean that's why we framed it that way everybody's favorite sin to talk about because it's often weird sex stuff uh an uncontrolled sexual desire, right, leading to something like fornication or sexual impurity. Um, we talk about, you know, what Jesus says, you know, it's not enough just to not do the physical act with someone else who's not your spouse. It's even when you're thinking about them in the, in your mind um, in a way that's inappropriate, that's, that's lust. So it can be un, uh, sexual, but it can just be kind of uncontrolled carnal desire in general. 
So it's this kind of inappropriate or unbridled desire. Could be for a physical object just as much as sexual gratification. It's the it's the that inversion of, of proper desire. And I think also there's an aspect of lust that involves a kind of objectification. It's it's treating someone else or something as a kind of it to be exploited. In which case, so like greed, you might elevate the thing above too high, but there's a sense in which in lust, you're actually devaluing the thing too much because it's just a sense of gratification. Um, it's just an object. You know, the house is important because it becomes a home, and there is a sense in which the home is this kind of abstraction or an abstract concept, right? Like the house becomes more than just the parts. Hmm. It takes on something else because you and your family inhabit it together. So each place is not just filled with stuff, but with memories. But if your house becomes something that you just want to use to exploit, which I'm not really sure exactly what that, I think I got myself in trouble going down that road because I'm not exactly sure what that would <laughs> look like. But but then it, it's it's you're objectifying it in a way that's probably not good. Yeah, and I think too, like in the process of objectification and the sort of disregard for the status of the person, for instance, um, there's also this aspect of um, like a, a negative aspect of like fantasy and escapism that goes with it. Um, again, in a similar way to sort of envy where you're not sort of thankful for what you do have mm -hmm. uh, or the place that you find yourself in, you then sort of have this uncontrolled, like unbridled creation of uh, a world that is not real, that is not um, true, that you then engage in a particular, you know, like like a sexual fantasy right where you you have this it's it's not a real world you've objectified the person just to fulfill your own desire and you're now in this like world of this this sort of really dangerous damaging sort of imagination uh, that's disconnected from your own sort of embodied experience and there is a kind of selfishness at the core of this and that I mean, I think the context of marriage is really helpful because in the context of marriage, there's this kind of mutual self-giving and that expresses itself, obviously, in the, in the sexual act. And so when, you know, if one spouse is spending a lot of their time and energy on lust, whatever that looks like for them, whether that's purely a thought life or the use of something like pornography or an affair, that is not just hurtful to the person because it's they may perceive that as a lack of desire for them, the other person, but it's also you very, in a very real sense, stealing energy and attention from that person, which is the proper channel, the fitting channel for you to act in that way. And you're redirecting that, you're stealing it and you're putting it somewhere else, which is, um, again, it's it's not that the, desire for sex is bad right that's a good thing that god created mm -hmm. but you are using it in an unfitting way yeah and and you know i i i think of like the giving and taking kind of 
analogy there. Um, that in marriage, you know, you're sort of giving yourself to your to your spouse, and that's in that's you, you can take the sexual out of it. That it's an expression of that reality, but uh, in the you know married life, you give of yourself. And it's why we have things like emotional affairs. You don't have to just have enough. It, it doesn't. Ha you don't even have to have a lustful thought, and it's still an immoderate or improper or unfitting way of relating to someone else. Right. Um, and and you can, in a sense, use any sort of like an an emotional affair or, or a sexual fantasy, pornography, whatever it is, and it's this sort of act of taking rather than an act of giving. Um, lust is sort of taking someone um and it could be in like kind of in in a real sense of 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 like actually engaging in a sexual act with another person and like an affair uh but it's also the the sort of objectified fantastical taking of someone and they're equally the problem right and this is like you said with you know when our lord is is teaching on this he's very clear it's like well you know what happens up here happens it's not what goes into the body, it's what goes out that's unclean, he says, elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and, and you know... And I, people... oh, I think there's, ahead, a simil there's a similar kind of irrationality here, too, right? Because, like, when we talk about anger, you know, it comes in a strong mm -hmm. burst, but then you might have that moment where you think in the middle of it, like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? This doesn't make sense. I think the same is true in the context of of in a, a in a sort of attack from lust. You know, it's like uh, initially you may find it difficult to control to bridle yourself, but at a certain point things will slow down and you'll be like, "Why am I doing this again?" You know. But then it's that persistence in doing it once you know that is I think becomes really scary and you know that kind of inward turn. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think that leads us on to the next one. So everyone get your dinner plates ready. We're going to talk about gluttony. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think we're, we're pretty used to, to sort of defining this one. But gluttony is the sort of overconsumption of anything, really. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Latin root of the word, glutire, literally means to gulp down or to swallow. Uh, so this is a very sort of visceral kind of one of these sins where it's overindulgence in food and drink and you know it's it's not one of those things that's just bad for your health because it is like you can overeat and then develop heart problems you can develop joint problems you can make yourself sick you can give yourself acid reflux like it's all there many many of these have psychosomatic like like anger, it's like somebody who struggles with anger, there are health effects that can come with that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and gluttony and lust. I mean, what we know about like the, the neurobiology of the brain and or neurochemistry of the brain and how porn can affect that, you know, is really bad. And so there's a bunch of like, these aren't just spiritual realities as if they're sectioned off from biological ones. They're, there's interplay over both. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, what what you do with your body affects your soul. What you do with your soul affects your body. And like to ignore that fact, I think is the you do so at your own peril. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, glut gluttony is one of those things that really makes a mockery of moderation, like we were talking about at the beginning. 
Uh, it is the inverse of moderation. It is just going to an extreme uh, in excess, like that wild, obsessive extreme, uh, which damages our ability to moderate and and restrain ourselves. Um, and so food is not bad. Drink is not bad. You know, going to a, a great restaurant, go, enjoy it. Uh, there's a time and a place for everything, and we as as you know human beings are used to thinking of, in terms of like beauty and 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 art and things like that. Well, food is the same thing. Food is enjoyable to us. Food tastes good, and you know we're not we we're not being told by um, you know the church or scripture or anything that you know you just need to eat brown sludge every day and like you know get past it right food is something that is enjoyable and and it's naturally enjoyable to us but when we take it to an extreme and obsess over consumption and that's really uh, a major problem and you know again saint thomas aquinas does a great job of sort of giving us some subcategories which i think help us understand how we're engaging with uh, like food and drink. And so he, he talks about gluttony can be expressed in eating too expensively. So, you know, if you're regularly spending an excessive amount of money on food all the time, that's probably a gluttonous attitude. Um, if you're eating too daintily, which I thought this one was pretty interesting, um, then it's the same sort of vice that's contrary to moderation right it's too, the deprivation literally too too little of something is it is a problem um if you're eating too much that's one i think we always we all, we all agree on that we can understand from gluttony overeating is a problem uh eating too soon can be gluttonous you know it, it's like opening your christmas presents before christmas Right. There's a problem in that. There's a lack of restraint, a lack of discipline. Yeah. So like if you have a meal at like four o'clock, three thirty in the afternoon, it's late enough that, you know, it's past lunch, but it's too early probably for it to be a proper dinner. So what happens at nine when you're hungry again? You know, you'll probably end up eating basically a second dinner. And so then you've now instead of having three meals, which is pretty, you know, standard, you've now added an extra meal because you're timing you, you couldn't resist earlier. You couldn't wait an extra hour and a half, two hours, you know, yeah. you to have it now. Couldn't have like a little snack to hold you over or something. You know, I got to have the meal now. Or people who, I mean, the, uh, and I think another way in which you might see this is that inability to even have a little snack, right? So it's like, right. I, once I start doing this, I can't stop. And of course, that extends to more than just food. I mean, video games, there are people who can't play video games for, you know, an hour. They've got to do it all day. Um, right. There are people who can't, uh, they, they just can't stop themselves. Alcohol would, I mean, alcohol is, I guess, part of food and drink, but alcohol in particular, they can't just have one, you know. Mm -hmm. And And of course, all of us have some predispositions to these things. But also important to note that I think the way that, our sort of consumerist culture is structured, there is always an active incentive for companies to make you gluttonous for whatever product it is, right? So video games, 
uh, like especially on on smartphones and stuff, but also I think on consoles and stuff, they know from a neuroscience perspective exactly how to make it addictive enough that you'll keep coming back and that it'll be hard for you to set it down. Similarly, you know, you look at, I mean, the people at McDonald's, for example, are so well versed in the psychology of it like they even i mean the way the straws designed is meant to let in just the right amount of air so that it hits the drink and it makes it you know even better like that that first sip of the mcdonald or the way they salt the fry i mean everything about the experience is meant to to get you hooked on it yeah um, you know the air conditioning being you know it's it's people who are warm are less likely to eat more if they're cold their body ticks over into needing food and wanting food and so they keep it cold in there it's all there to in, to to propel us towards overconsumption and yeah. the ultimate problem is overconsumption and we should say too i mean we call these the deadly sins and they are and they set the stage for mortal sin which we've talked about previously mortal sin is you know sort of a willful knowing rebellion against god you know i know this is wrong but i'm going to do it and it should be said that there are and at least in some of these cases, you know, a, just because we call them deadly sins doesn't mean that the person who engages in them is always committing a mortal sin. In fact, like with something like gluttony and with the way that companies do design the dining experience, if you can call it dining, uh, to be addictive, that may actually lessen culpability from the consumer. That doesn't mean that it's a good thing. Right. right. It just means they're ignorant of the decision that they're making and a journey of self-discovery that we're called to make, finding out who we are created to be who we are in Christ should hopefully unveil those things. And once they once we become aware of them, then it becomes a little bit more of an of a conscious struggle. But that's that's part of the process of that stripping away the vice and filling with virtue is really a lot of that self-examination. Um, so it may be that, yeah, I you know, you struggle with gluttony, but you don't know that you struggle with gluttony because you haven't thought about it. And you're not intentionally saying, oh, I know I shouldn't go to McDonald's, but I'm going to anyways. You know, uh, it may not be willful. It might be a convenient thing or whatever. Um, it's just a pattern that you've fallen into it and it's totally normal to you or whatever. Um so anyway, so it, just all that to say, we're not saying every time you every time you have a vice that when you act on that vice, it equals mortal sin. Yeah, there's Absolute, more to it than that. Absolutely. Um, and I think another aspect to gluttony, which, you know, kind of needs mentioning, too, is that gluttony can desensitize us to the mm -hmm. needs of people who don't have enough. Uh, so people who are hungry, malnourished, the needy, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that we can, you know, afford expensive this or too much of that might desensitize our, um, our ability, you know, it might deaden our ability to, to see what people need and, um, you know, the, their lack of access to, to food or healthy food, whatever that looks like. Um, but yeah, overconsumption, don't do it. All right, I think this gets us to the last one. And since, um, you know, you and I were talking about sloth and acedia, um, you know, I, I think this is one of those topics that, it's very 
important in the kind of modern world. Um, and I know that you are, you know, you're going to greatly looking forward to, to doing the, the full episode on Acedia. Um, but, you know, I think since we are going to touch on Acedia in a future episode, you know, we're not going to go into crazy depth here. Um, hold, hold on, listeners uh, and viewers. The Acedia episode is coming, and it'll be a big one. So uh, wait for that. Look out for that. But I, I think it's important to note, too, that the word itself means to not care. Um, and was originally used, at least one of the, some of the earlier uses pre-Christian era, or would be people who wouldn't bury the dead, or right. their dead, and their family. So uh, going back to our Tobit episode, right? That's one of yeah. his big concerns, is to go bury the dead. And everybody in Israel has kind of lapsed into this state of acedia, because they won't bury their own dead. Yeah, and and you know that sort of lack of care, uh, if if we want to call it sloth or acedia, if you look in medieval art, uh, a lot of times the seven deadly sins are depicted with animals, and uh, sloth is depicted as a snail, and you know I think I think we do sort of undervalue that particular word. You know, we we sort of reduce the idea of slothfulness to laziness. And there's certainly an aspect here of laziness, but that doesn't kind of get us to the whole picture. Um, but with this particular vice, it really is a sort of lack of interest or a habitual disinclination to exertion or to action or to a good. Um, so sometimes you'll see it also described as a sort of indifference to your obligations or an indifference towards your obligation to God a general sort of malaise that disregards your your own sort of obligations and responsibilities. Uh, so this is this is sort of a sin of omission in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, it's the opposite of, of action. Uh, so in doing nothing, you are actually doing something. So you lack attentiveness to your duties. You lack uh, care for God or for family or for friends or for yourself. And, you know, someone like Jeffrey Chaucer, who, Classical Mind, have you guys have done Canterbury We're about Tales? to, just coming up here. Right, well, no, we're not doing Canterbury Tales. We're doing one of his other works. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so in, in, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, um, in, his, uh, in the section with the parson, um, you see he, he kind of goes into the idea of sloth and, and acedia, and it's this sort of languishing or holding back from a good work because it might be hard, tiresome, difficult. It may cause personal suffering. Uh, and then then it's sort of a, a, a peevishness that's mm -hmm. directed at the good itself. So you don't want to do it because it's hard. And then you're sort of peevish and eh, churlish about the good itself. Um, so you're disinclined towards it. You're like, I don't want to do that because eh, it's hard. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make me want to work and I'm going to have to acknowledge my obligations to God and other people. I don't want to do that. And so you kind of become miss, uh, maybe misanthropic towards it. Well, and there's a kind of restlessness that goes along with it too, right? It's, I mean, Evagrius uh, uh, and Cassian talk about it as like the monk not wanting to stay in his cell. And one of the solutions was just stay in your cell. Like no matter what you do, just stay there. Don't leave until it goes away. 
Um, and I mean, we see that today, you know, I mean, maybe it's with prayer, you know, maybe it's, maybe you could do the daily offices, but you just don't feel like it. You know, um, that certainly has been my experience during seasons, you know, some seasons it's like, I just, it's only going to take me 15 minutes, but I really don't want to do it. Um, so it might be that it might be going to mass on Sundays. I just don't want to get up. I don't want to drag myself there. It may be an inability to find oneself uh, in a stable church community that always that need to always be leaving and trying something different, you know, um, hopping from place to place. Uh, that's certainly part of it as well. That's something I've had to deal with pastorally. It's very hard. Yeah, there's a, you know, a lack of willingness to kind of grow where you're planted. Um, the, the curiositas can be part of this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and a distractedness, like a, a willingness to fall into distraction. If it, if it means you don't have to do the good that is difficult or the thing that, you know, you should, um, and, and that can lead to like, you know, in some modern cases, if you, if you look at the seven deadly sins, there's been a number of books written on the sort of psychology of the seven deadly sins. And so a lot of times you'll see things like depression associated with this or anxiety, you know, a, a sort of anxiety and depression, uh, a kind of mix. And that's because, you know, you should be doing the thing. You don't want to do the thing. And you are anxious about doing the thing. Like it, it all goes together. I have had some of my most profound ideas for other projects while I'm working on a really long project. Right. Like when I was writing yeah. either of my theses, it's like. In the middle of that thing, man, I have about a hundred ideas for articles, books, uh, podcasts, whatever. And then yep. as soon as I finish that project, I don't, I lose all of it. But in the middle of those projects, man, all that other stuff sounds really interesting. Anything but the thing you're supposed to be doing. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, and and you know, I if if you go back and read like Evagrius or John Cassian, yes, they're writing to months. Okay. Yeah. Sure. They're writing to people who are living this, you know, ascetical, contemplative life. Um, and they're really kind of face to face with some of the very, they're very aware of these particular issues. But it's not just monks. No, no. Um, it's, it's every, it's every Christian. And I'm, I'm not a big one for saying that every Christian needs to be sort of monastic, you know, the whole like monkhood of all believers thing that gets thrown around. That's, I'm not huge on that principally because I think what it does is it bleaches away the distinction and vocation that some people really are called basically to go into battle in a monastery um, for their own souls and for the souls of others. Uh, you know, the, the monk's vocation is to pray and to, to pray for the world and we need the world to be prayed for. And it's to pray for themselves. It's, it is the thing that God has made them for, uh, for their own salvation. And, and I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to break down the, that, that sort of distinct, uh, you know, distinguishing of vocations uh, and say like, everybody has this, this sort of thing. But what plagues the monk maybe in an extreme way is always going to plague the Christian. Uh, they're just sort of more attuned to it in a, in a more direct encounter. I was going to say, it makes sense to me that some of these early writings about the spiritual life in the, in the, in terms of the history of the church 
would come in monastic contexts because monastic contexts are such clear distillations of the Christian life, whereas those who occupy secular vocations, while having a dignity in and of themselves, there are a whole lot more nuances to living a secular Christian life that the monastic doesn't have to worry about. I mean, right, this is why St. Paul tells people, well, if you don't, you don't have to get married, maybe don't, because then you can right. focus on on pursuing Christ instead of having to worry about your spouse and you're feeding your kids and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it makes sense to me. And I do think, by the way, uh, you know, we had Greg Peters on who wrote Monkhood of All Believers. And I think that his response would be echo, to echo the exact sentiments that you just had, because he talked about that. We talked about this with him and E.B. Pusey, where one of the real negative things about the English Reformation was the total removal of the monastic from the church in England. And what you then have is a kind of deprivation where Christian people, especially children who are growing up in the church, don't have the monastic in front of them as an option. And so they don't know that they could, they might be, they may have this calling to be a monastic and, and have no idea how to how to live that out or be faithful to it or answer the call because they don't have models in front of them right. to do it. So it's really, uh, it can be, you're exactly right that we can, if we, if we diminish the monastic vocation, it's bad, not only for the people who are called to it, but really it's bad for the whole church. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of these things, they find their, their fullest articulation in, in the monastic context and they, they filter down to everyone else. Um, and I don't think we need to like place monastic sort of asceticism on the average person, you know, with their family and things like that. Right. Um, and that's kind of my thing is like, you know, I, I, I don't think we need to, you know, expect everybody that they're going to be, you know, you have to have a job and a family and a this and a that and the other, but also you should be like, you know, praying all of the hours every day and you should be doing this, 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 and this. You can incorporate aspects of that life into your life in a in a way that is um, not onerous or going to burn you out. Um, but the way we talk about our spiritual experience, I think it's really great that it has sort of trickled down to us from the monastic tradition because what they give us is a really precise insight into the human experience of God. Um, and so something like acedia, something like sloth, we really need to become aware of it in our secular lives. Um, you know, yeah, maybe 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 doom scrolling on Instagram is an expression of acedia. Uh, and we need to develop some spiritual practices, mentorship, spiritual direction that's going to help us deal with that. Mm. You know, um Maybe you do need to, to delete the app, you know, or whatever. Like that might be something that needs to happen because it's being, it's becoming a pattern of behavior that's preventing you from the good. And ultimately the good, when we look at something like Acedia, is the obligations that we have to God and to one another. Yeah. And if if some pattern of behavior in your life is preventing you from going to church going to mass, being involved in the community of your church, uh, having real effective 
substantive relationships with your family or the people at your church, then yeah, maybe um, maybe we should deal with that pattern of behavior. Yep, absolutely. If your right hand causes you to sin, um, maybe we should bring this uh, episode to an end so that our listeners don't start suffering from restlessness that comes with acedia. Absolutely. Yeah, you have anything to say in conclusion? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's just important to remember uh, to put this in a framework that that when we think about virtue and vice, what's really helpful about it, in my opinion, is that it's a very humanizing way of thinking rather than a legalistic one. So it's not that there's a list of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. I mean, there is a list. It's called the Ten Commandments. But, um, but you know what I mean in terms of, you know, thou shalt not eat more than a thousand calories in one meal. Uh, but no, rather, there's a kind of wisdom and prudence that comes along as we as we navigate our way through these various vices and how they might be affecting us. Maybe the solution is not that we deprive ourselves or that we go, you know, full fledged into excess, but rather, again, that kind of goal of fittingness and moderation that really do, does matter. And, and if we if we pursue those things and we do them well with wisdom, then we become more human. And I think that's really important. And that's the end goal. Um, it's the the laws don't exist for themselves. They exist to, for us, for our benefit. Yeah, it's 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 ultimately about a very pastoral, humanized way of understanding our relationship to each other, our relationship to God, and the things we do in the world, the patterns that affect what we do in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing one of my confessors does often, you know, if I like confess something about, you know, not again, not that I've ever done this, but like, you know, snapping at my wife or something like that uh, will be, he'll say things like, I mean, he won't give this as a penance, but he'll say things like, Hey, why don't you do something nice for your wife? And I think the, the purpose in that, I mean, it sounds kind of trite almost, but the purpose of that is like, okay, you've identified a bad thing that you did or a negative thing that you did uh, of that maybe comes from a vice. So do this nice thing for your wife as a way of building those kind of that kind of muscle memory, mm. you know, do something nice and then it becomes easier to do nice things. And I mean, we know this from a, from a, a neurochemistry perspective, right? That the, that when we do certain things, it hardwires these connections between synapses in the brain. And so if you're only ever doing it one way, then it becomes so easy to just slip into that behavior. So rewire it. The more you do it, the easier it is to do. Yeah, I think that's the choir here. I think that's great, though. No, I think that's that's a good place to end it. Um, And we can jump into our favorite section, which is what we're into. Father Wes, what are you into? Well, I pastorally cannot recommend this to everyone because there's a lot of language and stuff in it. But I have been watching the show Succession on HBO Max. I guess they just call it Max now. Uh, It's a show about uh, a very successful businessman with three very spoiled children adult children who are vying for control of his company when he dies and there are certainly themes from Macbeth or I'm sorry Hamlet uh maybe Macbeth too uh and also uh Greek mythology a lot of sort of allusions to Greek mythology in it which have made it very interesting to me uh but also just as a from a writing perspective and a character perspective uh just a really well done well acted show and uh so i just ended it yesterday and uh man i it's 
definitely going to stick with me for a while. So, yeah. What about you? I've had lots of people recommend Succession, by the way. You should watch um, it. And I haven't watched it, it yet. I haven't watched it yet, but I plan on watching it. Um, I'm into... I'm, I'm, I have to have mentioned this before. Uh, one of my favorite authors is um, Bernard Conwell, and he wrote like the Sharps series, and he's got a bunch of other series. Um, but I will regularly go back and reread his books. I have all of them, and I think last I think the last episode I may have said uh, Fools and Mortals, which is his book, um, sort of set in Shakespearean England, and, and you know with Shakespeare's younger brother. But I am currently into another uh, Bernard Conwell book, which is called Harlequin. Um, and yeah, no, pastorally, maybe, um, you know, parental advisory warning on his books, um, some language and adult themes, but um, really interesting character development and storytelling. Uh, and this particular series is his Grail series. Um, and so it's about an archer during the Hundred Years' War, and you know it covers the Battle of Cressy, and it, it it just gets into some really interesting stuff. Um, fantastic books, and they're kind of my um, I, I don't know how to describe his books. I love historical fiction, but I'm reading like three or four other you know, nonfiction books. And when I'm reading nonfiction, I also like to have kind of a, a rotation of fiction going on that I can read at night before I go to bed or that can kind of clear my mind. Um, and so his books usually are kind of always going on in the background for me. Um, but if you're interested in historical fiction, I would definitely, definitely recommend him any day of the week. Um, but yeah, that's a that's about it. Maybe maybe next time we'll be into succession. Who knows? Hopefully, we could do an episode the you know th the theology of succession. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, all right, listeners and viewers, thanks for watching and tuning in. If you like what we're doing, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter, uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, we've had a lot of growth there, so keep it up, guys. You're doing a great job. Uh, if you're interested, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. And again, if you would like to have access to our Discord and some bonus content, uh, you can join the Communion of Patreon Saints for just $5 a month. It's a great place, and the Discord is a fun community to be a part of, and we'd love to see you there. We recently acquired a resident Baptist, so that's We very did. Yeah. We did, and he and he's putting up with us. He is, and we're putting up with him. <laughs> all right so we're gonna end the episode with a uh, a beautiful closing prayer um that deals with the seven deadly sins uh, so let us pray oh jesus model of humility divest me of all pride and arrogance let me acknowledge my weakness and sinfulness so that i bear so that i may bear mockery and contempt for your sake and esteem myself as lowly in your sight O Jesus, teacher of abstinence, help me to serve you rather than our appetites. Keep me from gluttony, the inordinate love of food and drink, and let me hunger and thirst for your justice. O Jesus, lover of purity, 
Remove all lust from my heart so that I may serve you with a pure mind and a chaste body. O Jesus, Father of the poor, help me to avoid all covetousness for earthly goods and give me a love for heavenly things. Inspire me to give to the needy just as you gave your life, that I may inherit eternal treasures. O Jesus, exemplar of love, keep me from all envy and ill will. Let the grace of your love dwell in me, that I may rejoice in the happiness of others and bewail their adversities. O Jesus, zealous lover of souls, keep me from all sloth of mind or body. Inspire me with zeal for your glory, so that I may do all things for you and in you. Jesus, my merciful Redeemer, my loving Savior, my divine Healer, all this I humbly pray and ask in confidence and filled with faith, hope, and trust in your holy and mighty name. Amen. Amen.